This is Doug Hastings, Vice President of Moody Radio, and we're thankful for support from our listeners and businesses like United Faith Mortgage. Mortgage commercials are rarely exciting. So to make it slightly more interesting, here are my nieces to do it for me. So interest rates continue to drop like my sister's baby teeth. Come on, Uncle Ryan had to say the same thing last year. That's true. Last year, it was rates are boring talk historically low. And now this year, there's somehow even more boring talk historically lower than the previous boring talk historically low. Sounds boring. But for so many listeners who just haven't wanted to deal with it, refinancing right now could save you massive amounts of Lego sets. Rates have gotten that low. Some borrowers could potentially save hundreds monthly and tens and tens of thousands over the life of a loan. And if you didn't put 20% down before, some could even stop having to pay PMI. Give Uncle Ryan a shot. We are United Faith Mortgage. United Faith Mortgage is a DBA of United Mortgage Corp. 25 Melville Park Road, Melville, New York. Licensed Mortgage Banker. For all licensing information, go to nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Corporate NMLS number 1330. Equal housing lender. Not licensed in Alaska, Hawaii, Georgia, Massachusetts, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Utah. You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. Today, we bring you a bonus sixth message carried over from last week's featured speaker, William McRae, titled, A God Who is an All-Present God. Dr. William McRae was a schoolteacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University in Theological Seminary. Now, here is William McRae on Today in the Word radio. According to the wise men of Israel... In Proverbs 23, verse 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. That's a very, very profound principle. As a person thinks in their heart, so is that person. I think what the proverb is simply saying is that your behavior really is an outgrowth of your beliefs. Uh, Your conduct really is a reflection of your concepts. And while that's true in a hundred different areas of life, it seems to me, friends, that there is no area in which it is more true than in our concepts of God and in our beliefs of God. What you and I think about God really does determine the kind of persons that we really are. Show me a person and how they handle their leisure time, how they cope with crises in life, how they respond to temptations. Show me the priorities of a person. Show me the, uh, the plans and purposes of that person's life. Show me a person's private life. And I will tell you a great deal about that person and their concept of God. As a matter of fact, in uh, counseling and in parenting and in ministry at large, it's a tremendously encouraging thing to realize that if you can change a person's concept of God, you can change their life. And I simply challenge you to show me any other way to be more effective in changing a person's life. If I really want to change the life of a congregation, I want to change their thoughts about God. And this has been one of the deep settled convictions that I've had for the last numbers of years so that every place I've gone in my last three ministries, which has covered over 18 years, every place I've gone, the first thing I've done when I've got involved in those ministries is I've taken a series about God. 
That's the first thing we did when I went to Ontario Bible College and Theological Seminary. I have the privilege of conducting what is called the President's Chapel. And at the seminary, it's Wednesday morning. At the college, it's Thursday morning. And the very first thing I did at the college and seminary five years ago was I took a series on what kind of a God we have, the nature of God, the attributes of God, the character of God. Uh, Thirteen years before that, when we went to a church in London where we pastored for eight years, the first thing I did when I went to that church on that Sunday morning for the next numbers of weeks was to take a series on God. And that is simply because the deepest conviction I have is that um, the most important thing that you and I need to get right is our perception of God. And as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. There is no area in which that is truer than in what we think about God. When we get involved with people who are having troubles in their marriages and troubles in relationships and attitudes toward themselves that are out of skew and so on, and you sense, here's a person that needs to be changed. Rather than dealing with all of the surface problems, which seems to me is one of the great mistakes that we make in our churches today, rather than addressing all those specific problems, my perspective is to go underneath it all and to recognize there's something wrong with a person's perception of God. And if you can change a person's concept of God, you can change that person's life. And so now I can tell you what my agenda has been for this week. It's been to change your life. And I know that if I can change what you think about God, so that you see God to be the God of the Bible, and you really have a perception of God as God, I know that if that's happened this week, your life will be changed. As a man thinketh in his heart about God, so is he. And that's particularly true when it comes to dealing with the crises and the temptations and the challenges of life. Yesterday we were wondering what it is that really enables some people to overcome instead of be overcome. All of us have uh, the storms, and all of us have the tidal waves, and all of us have the clouds, and all of us have the problems. And life is, is made up of that. And some people become overcome by their problems. They get wiped out by them. And they become neutralized. Other people overcome them. And so our question yesterday was, what is it that really makes some people overcomers? And the answer to it, of course, is their concept of God, their perspective of God. And we looked at David to find out what it was that enabled David in a time that was really a tough time in his life. Israel, God's chosen people, were being hassled by the Philistines. He, God's chosen king, was being hassled by the king, Saul. And it was a very difficult time in David's life. And yet in the midst of that time, David didn't get wiped out. He didn't become overcome. He didn't get discouraged. He didn't become depressed. Suicide wasn't on his agenda. He didn't decide to resign from God's service. He overcame. And the question is, how does a man, how does a woman overcome in the midst of circumstances that are really calculated to overcome us? How do you become an overcomer? And so we turn to Psalm 139, which is the psalm that David wrote likely within the context of those very difficult and challenging days of his life. We discovered that Psalm 139 is a hymn. It's a hymn with four stanzas, and each stanza has six verses. And in stanza number one, he focuses upon one characteristic of God, and it is the knowledge of God. 
And it was David's appreciation of the kind of God he has, that he's a God who knows, that gave David the stability and the strength to overcome in the circumstances where he was. Now, this morning, we're going to come to the second stanza, verses 7 through 12, and we're going to discover that there's a second characteristic of God that was tremendously strengthening and encouraging to David in the midst of his very difficult circumstances. If in verses 1 through 6, you have the omniscience of God, in verses 7 through 12, you have the omnipresence of God. And so that's the second characteristic of God that impressed David and stabilized David and strengthened David and enabled him to overcome. It was the fact that God was with him. Notice how David expresses it. Where can I go from thy spirit? Or where can I flee from thy presence? The question that he's asking in verse 7 is simply this. Is there any place I can go, God, to get away from you? Is there any place I could ever possibly be where I would be out of your gaze? Where I would be separated from your presence? Where you wouldn't be standing right beside me? Where you wouldn't be standing right with me in those circumstances? Is it possible for me to ever find a place in this universe? Is it possible for me to ever have a circumstance or situation in life where I would be separated from you? Where I couldn't count on you being with me? That's his question. He begins by looking upward. He says, if I ascend to heaven, thou art there. And I assume what he is simply saying there is that it's, it's impossible for me to go in that direction, up, to any level up there where I'm away from you, I'm apart from you. I can't possibly go up, 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 so that I'm up so far that I've escaped the, the security and the, the strength of your presence. If I ascend right up into the heavens, you're there. That's a word of encouragement if you're a little nervous about flying. You can't possibly fly higher than God is. And you can't fly outside the sphere of God's presence and influence. Verse 8, he goes down. He says, if, my ba- if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, thou art there. And so now he's moving in the different direction. And what he's in fact saying is, it's impossible for me to go down that way, to go down so far and down far enough that I'm going to escape your presence. And then he starts moving east and west in verse 9. If I take the wings of the dawn and I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there thy hand will lead me and thy right hand will lay hold of me. So he's moved in another direction. He's gone north, and he's gone south, and now he's saying, if I go this way, if I go that way, it's impossible for me to move any direction in that direction where I'm going to be outside the sphere of your presence and the sphere of your influence. Now he comes to the last part of his perspective in his argument, and in verse 11 he says, If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, Even the darkness is not dark to thee, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are a light to thee. And what he says in verses 11 and 12 is that I can't escape God's presence by pulling down the shades in the house. I can't escape God's presence by turning off the lights. 
I may escape the gaze of other people, but I can't escape God's gaze because there's absolutely no difference between midnight darkness and noonday brightness. They are exactly the same to God. Now, that's very significant, friends, because what he is saying is that there is absolutely no place in all of this universe that God has created where you and I can escape the presence of God. You can't go up far enough to escape it. You can't go down far enough to escape it. You can't go that way or that way far enough to escape it. And right here, you can't build a building. You can't put on a roof. You can't pull down the shades. You can't turn off the lights. You can't do anything right here where you are to escape the presence of God. That's the omnipresence of God. That is the great theological doctrine that says that God is here. Wherever you are in the universe, God is here. It is the omnipresence of God. Now, when you start to play with that, uh, that great theological term, you come up with certain statements that help you to sort of sharpen the focus and to get a grasp of it. For example, someone, some people will say the omnipresence of God means that uh, every part of God or all of God, rather, is in every part of this universe or of this space. All of God is in every part of this universe or space. What that is saying to us, of course, is that uh, we don't have part of God here and another part of God up at Ontario Bible College. What it is saying is that we have God here. And God is at Ontario Bible College. God is over at Bible Town. And God is up at Moody Bible Institute. It's not that each of us have a part of God, but God is here, and God is here, and God is here. We have all of God in every part of the universe. Every point of space contains God. And it's impossible to ever occupy a point of space where God in his fullness is not there. It is the omnipresence of God. Sometimes it's helpful for us to put it in contrast with the immensity of God. And the immensity of God simply says that while um, in the omnipresence of God, God fills space, space is more than God. And he overflows space. That's sort of the immensity of God. He is overflowing space. There are some marvelous verses in the Bible that, that focus upon that. For example, in 1 Kings 8.27, uh, after the great temple has been built in Solomon's day. But will God indeed dwell on earth, says Solomon? Behold the heavens, and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have built. And what Solomon is saying is that uh, while God fills this house and while God fills this earth and while God fills heaven, he overfills it. That is the immensity of God. The omnipresence of God is that he fills space. The immensity of God is the overflow space. He is more than that. And those are the kinds of concepts that really make us be a little boggled in our mind. There's one of the early church fathers who put it this way. God is like a circle whose center is every place. 
whose circumference is no place. Now, if you want to chew with something while you're sitting by the pool this afternoon, you think that went through. God is like a circle whose center is every place. That's the omnipresence of God. Wherever you are in space, God is there. But whose circumference is no place. He overflows space. He is more than space. He is beyond space. Whose center is everywhere. That's the omnipresence of God. Whose circumference is no place. That's the immensity of God. And those are the kinds of concepts that help us to understand that our God is really a God who is apart from and other than all of the other gods that have been part of the worship systems of the world. Our series for this week in the mornings has been a God who is God. And the thing that makes him distinct from all of the other gods is that he is omnipresent. And more than that, he is a God of immensity. He overflows space. That was not true of any of the gods that were worshipped in the days of the ancient days as well as today. You could go to a spot and there was that piece of stone mounted up upon that rock and there's God. And you could go to a temple that was built to a certain God and there was an idol or a shrine inside that temple and that's where that God dwells. All of the local deities in the days of the Old and New Testament were just that. They were local deities. But the God who is God is a God who fills all of space with his whole being and overfills space. Even the heaven of heavens cannot contain him. That's the kind of God we have. He's a God who is omnipresent. He is the all-present God. Now that's a very important truth for us to grasp. It's so simple. It's so commonplace. It's so profound. As a matter of fact, it's a little disturbing to us to discover that uh, some grapple and struggle with that kind of concept. Can you believe it that um, in a church bulletin in a church in Wisconsin a little time ago, the uh, pastoral staff put this announcement inside the church bulletin. They wrote, there have been a number of people leaving the church a few minutes after they have received Holy Communion. This is a great dishonor to our blessed Lord. The church tells us Jesus remains in our bodies 15 minutes after we have received Holy Communion. That means that our thanksgiving should be at least 15 minutes long. We should not leave the church until the Lord is no longer with us. Can you believe that in a church bulletin? One of the great marvelous truths that we have, friends, as Christians, is that God is with us. In his whole being, wherever we are in his universe, God is with us. A Jewish peddler once came to the front door of a home where some Christians resided. And when he stepped inside with his suitcase, he noticed on the side of the wall in the hall a picture of... Jesus. And he asked the uh, lady of the house if that was a picture of her Messiah. And she said, it is. That's a picture of, of my Messiah. It's a picture of my Savior. That's an artist's conception of what Jesus may have looked like. And underneath it, there was a little text. And he said, what, what does that text mean? And so she read the text. 
And lo, I am with you always. And he turned to her and he said, Boy, what a wonderful Messiah you Christians have. He is always with you. And as she wrote it, he gazed into the picture. Then he slowly took his pack, left the room. And he, she said, And I still heard him whispering, What a wonderful Messiah. He's with you always. That's our God. He is an omnipresent God. He has, uh, in his full being, presenced himself with us wherever we are in this universe of his. Now, what's that mean to us in life? What are the implications of that? What are the practical values of it? You see, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And if you and I think in our minds, God is with me. In his full being, God is with me. God is here. How will that change our lives? How does that affect our lives? How will it influence the kind of people that we are? How we behave? How we conduct ourselves? Well, when we take a look at David and see him out on the hillside there, you see him struggling out on the hillside. And when you see him in that kind of situation, there are some things that happen in his life that uh, I think help us to grasp some of the practical implications of, um, of believing and sensing that God is with us. Take a look at him in the midst of the circumstances he's at with uh, Psalm 139. There he is out on the hillside. He's fleeing from Saul. Uh, Saul, is, uh, Saul is intent upon killing him. And uh, there's David out on the hillside. Strangely enough, he's not traumatized by fear. And if you have read the story in uh, the books of the historical books of the Old Testament, then that becomes apparent. If you read between the lines in the writing of this psalm, it becomes evident. And my question is, why isn't David a young lad with a few motley men siding with him? Why isn't he frightened to death when the king of Israel, with all of his trained militia, is after him, intent upon killing him? Wouldn't you be scared to death? Why isn't David overwhelmed with fear? Well, it's because David had the perception that God was with him. And that's one of the values of that great doctrine, friends. It overcomes fear in our lives as men and women. Now, I don't know where you are with the problem of fear, but let me tell you, I know a little bit about it. And I suspect you know a little bit about it too. My experience from my own life and from working with a lot of people is that there are few things that paralyze men and women more quickly than fear. You can be afraid of failure. And as a result, you won't touch it. You won't take that Sunday school class. You won't accept that ministry. You're afraid of failure. You can be afraid of criticism. And because you're afraid of being criticized, you're not going to step up. You're not going to speak out. You're not going to stand up for that kind of situation. You're afraid of being criticized. And it paralyzes you. Sometimes we're afraid of rejection. And that's why we don't like to share the Lord with our friends. That's why we hesitate to witness about Christ. Who wants to be rejected? And our fear of being rejected can paralyze us when it comes to witnessing about the Lord. 
Sometimes we're afraid of suffering. And nobody looks forward to suffering. Our fear of suffering oftentimes will cause us to, uh, to just be paralyzed so that we don't stand up and we don't step forward and we don't speak up. We run. One of the things that overcomes fear in the life of a believer is the consciousness of the presence of God. Joshua is about to assume the mantle of responsibility for Israel upon the death of Moses. He's a young man. There's the land of Canaan with all of its fortress cities and all of its trained militia. And here Joshua is with the Israelites. Reason for fear? Absolutely. Frightened to death? That's Joshua. And right in the midst of all of his fears, God comes to him and he says, Joshua, be strong. Be very courageous. Don't be afraid. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And it's almost as though you can see Joshua square his shoulders. He uh, stands six foot tall. He uh, turns and faces Canaan. And he says, with that, I can go for it. That's what the consciousness of the presence of God does in the life of men and women. When we were leaving London to go to Toronto, I was frightened to death. As a matter of fact, I was reluctant to accept the responsibilities, and I knew it was because of fear. I was afraid of being criticized. Who likes to step into positions where they're going to receive, receive criticism? We're a multi-denominational institution, and uh, we have about 27 different re- denominations uh, represented in our student body and faculty, and you can't possibly please 27 different denominations all the time. And there's always somebody coming from this direction or this direction, and I'm right in the middle of it. Who wants to live in that kind of situation? And I was afraid of criticism. I was desperately afraid of failure and afraid of all kinds of things, and it was paralyzing me. My wife gave me a gift just before we moved from London and came to Toronto. Uh, When we had been over in Egypt a few years ago, we bought a little piece of papyrus, and I said to her that one day I'd like to have a, a nice text from the Scripture written on it by, uh, by one of my friends who does telegraphy. And uh, just before we moved, my wife presented me with a gift. I opened it up, and there was that piece of papyrus nicely mounted in a frame. And on it, she had had one of the elders in our church in London uh, with his uh, penmanship inscribe those verses from Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Don't be afraid. Be strong. Be very courageous. As I was with Moses so I will be with you. And next time you come to Toronto and come and visit me at the college and seminary, I'll take you into my office, and on that wall at the other end of my office, right across from my desk, is that text. And oftentimes I have to stand up and I go over and look at it. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. What a marvelous promise that is. It has a way of overcoming the kinds of fears, friend, that traumatize us and neutralize us in our Christian ministry. If God's calling you, if God is sending you, God will be with you. 
And that's the practical implication of the omnipresence of God. Paul discovered that in Corinth. He had been there for a week or two, and there had been a little upset and not particular much blessing. And so Paul goes to bed one night. He's already packed his suitcase. He's leaving town the next morning. Acts chapter 18, God appears to him in a night vision, and he says, Paul, don't be afraid. I'm with you. And I've got many people in this city. I want you to stay. And Paul stayed. And the thing that turned the tide in Paul's life was the promise from God, I'm with you, Paul. Don't be afraid. I'm there. David Livingston is called by God to challenge the dark continent of Africa. As a young man leaving his home in Scotland, he met with some friends who tried to dissuade him, warning him of all of the dangers and all of the hazards that were out there. And the young missionary reached into his pocket, pulled out his New Testament, and read to his friends the text that God had given to him that became the life text for David Livingston. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And then turning to his friends, Livingston said, It is the word of a gentleman of the most strict and sacred honor, so let us be going. And the story of Livingston's life, with all of the dangers that surrounded him, was a story of overcoming, and he overcame because of his claim and that promise, Lo, I'm with you always. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary who opened up China, said, All of God's saints have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. They counted on his faithfulness. John Patton, the great missionary who opened up the Hebrides Islands, he and his wife went there when the islands were infested by cannibals. They were the first white people to come to the islands and to share the gospel. And you may know the story of their life. Uh, She gave birth to a baby. The baby died. And she died. And he had to bury the bodies of his baby and his wife under his tent so he would sleep over those bodies at night so that the cannibals would not come and eat his baby and his wife. He says when he came to the end of his life, left the Hebrides, that he did did not know of one person on the Hebrides who had not made a profession of trusting Christ as Savior. And after some of them became Christians, they turned to him and they said to him, Mr. Missionary, who were those soldiers that surrounded your tent at night with swords when we came to attack you before we became Christians? The angels of the Lord encamped around about him, protected him. And as John Patton looked back upon it, He said, without the abiding consciousness of the presence and power of the Lord Jesus, nothing in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason. His words, lo, I am with you always, were so real that I would not have been startled to see him step out of the bush. I felt his supporting power. That's the kind of thing, friend, that overcomes fear. It is the consciousness, God is with me. God is with me. In the fullness of his person, God is present. And that kind of reality overcomes fear. Some of us are leaving the conference and we're going back home. And you're going back to things that could frighten you to death. To responsibilities, to opportunities, to challenges. And if you don't learn how to handle those fears, you're going to lose out on some of the greatest possibilities of your life.
How do you overcome in a situation that is so frightening that it can traumatize you? It is the consciousness of the presence of God. Lo, I am with you always. The poet put it this way. God is before me. He will be my guide. God is behind me. No ill can be tied. God is beside me to comfort and cheer. God is around me, so why should I fear? And that's what David says. He's overcoming in the midst of that situation because of his consciousness of the presence of God. Take another look out on the hillside. There's David being chased by Saul, alone, hungry, cold, forsaken. It looks as though the plan is blowing up and God's lost control and what Samuel had said was going to happen was never going to happen. David, how come you're not a little depressed? How come you're not a little angry with God? How come you're not so overwhelmed with self-pity that you're a, a basket case? How come, David? What's David's answer in Psalm 139? It's because God is with me. And the presence of God not only overcomes fear, but secondly, the presence of God in our lives has a remarkable way, friends, of transforming circumstances in our life. That's what it does. It changes the circumstances that we're in when we realize that God is with us in those circumstances. That's what happened to Jacob. Or to, to Jacob after he had left home. Uh, he's running away, and uh, particularly from Saul, and he comes to that place where he lays down with a, uh, a, a rock as his pillow at night, and uh, he feels alone, he feels abandoned, he feels forsaken, and you remember what happens. He has a dream, and he sees that ladder, and the angels are ascending and descending, and there's God up at the head of the ladder. You remember what Jacob said when he awakened? Surely God is in this place, and I didn't know it. See, Jacob had bought into the theology of the, of the Canaanites, and he had thought that the God of his father was a local deity, and when he left home, he left the God of his father. And here he comes over to this place, and it's a God-forsaken place to Jacob until he discovers it's not a God-forsaken place, it's a God-inhabited place. God is here. And so he awakens and he calls the name of the place, what? Bethel, the house of God. Here, that's right, right on the hillside, stars above, rocks, cactus plants. This is the house of God. Why? Because God is here. See, that's what the consciousness of the presence of God does to us. It transforms circumstances. John Bunyan spends 12 years in Bedford jail. He's preached the gospel. What comes out of those 12 years in that prison cell? Some of the greatest literature that's ever been produced outside of the scriptures. Pilgrim's Progress. Other writings. And what John Bunyan tells us is that that prison cell was transformed into a throne room of heaven. Because he sensed God was there. And you've known that kind of experience, a hospital room. That's a hospital room can become a palace beautiful with the consciousness of the presence of God. Madame Guillaume spent eight years in the French Bastille and she wrote, Strong are the walls around me that hold me all the day, but they who thus have bound me cannot keep God away. My very dungeon walls are dear because the God I love is here. 
They know who thus oppress me, tis hard to be alone. But no, not one can bless me, who comes through bars and stone. He makes my dungeon's darkness bright and fills my bosom with delight. How, how does that happen in a person's life? Well, says David, it's the consciousness of the presence of God. It can change a marriage that is a little touch of hell into a touch of heaven. It can change a hospital room that is painful, smelly, and depressing into a triumphant, victorious experience. It's the consciousness of the presence of God. It can change a work environment that is agonizing and painful and stressful into an experience that is victorious and triumph. God is with me. God is here. God has put me in this situation. And it is that consciousness of that that has a remarkable capacity to uh, transform circumstances. What else does the presence of God do? Well, quickly, let me mention one or two others. Take a look at Saul, uh, David on one particular occasion when he steps inside when he steps inside that cave where Saul, his enemy, is sound asleep. Now I ask you, friend, what would you have done in that situation? Saul's asleep. All of his soldiers are asleep. You're standing over him. You've got a spear in your hand. And with one simple thrust, you can eliminate the competition. And you can take the throne that God has given to you. Because God has appointed you and anointed you as king. It surely looks as though God in his marvelous providences has arranged the circumstances. So that I can kill Saul and I can take the throne. Looks so perfect. Looks so natural. But David refuses to sin. Why? Because of his consciousness of the presence of God. You see, what the psalmist has said is, you can't get away from God by turning out the lights and pulling down the blinds. You don't get away from God by getting in your car and driving to the next town. It says there's no escape from the presence of God. And it's the consciousness of the presence of God. Even after you close the office doors and you're all alone in your office with the cash register or the books. You don't escape the presence of God. And what David is saying is that the consciousness of his presence is an incredibly powerful restraining force. It restrains us from sin. Finally, out on the hillside, what's David doing? Well, in the midst of circumstances that would have destroyed most of us, what David does is he produces some of the finest pieces of literature, some of the finest hymns, some of the finest psalms that we have in the Bible. As a matter of fact, my guess is that one of the reasons why the book of Psalms is one of your favorites is because they were written by a person in the midst of the pains and agonies of life who is so triumphant and is so trusting in God and so victorious and so overcoming. How do you explain that in David's life? How do some of those marvelous messianic psalms, some of those beautiful worship psalms, how do those psalms emerge in this kind of situation? Well, 
It's because of his sense of the presence of God in those circumstances. And that's what the presence of God does. It not only overcomes fear and transforms circumstances and restrains sin, but the consciousness of the presence of God cultivates and promotes a sense of worship and devotion in every situation and every circumstance of life. I've oftentimes wondered if I had the opportunity to relive one Bible experience, which one I would choose. That's a great parlor game, by the way. If you have some folks into your home and the party's getting dull and you want to liven it up a little bit, that's a good question to ask. If you could live one Bible incident, what would be your choice? Why? Well, for many, many years, there's been no competition for my choice. What I would love to have lived, if I had one moment, Bible history, that I could live, what I would love to have lived was the walk on the Emmaus Road. That's my choice. I'd love to hear what yours is, but that's my choice. I would love to have walked with the Lord on that resurrection day when he took me all through the Old Testament scriptures and expounded unto me the things concerning himself. I'd love to have had my broken heart start to be healed and to have that burning sensation that comes when he takes his word and he feeds, he opens it up, and he points us to himself in it. And yet I stand before you this morning, friend, a little rebuked because the fact of the matter is I have that privilege every day of my life. The one who walked on the Emmaus Road 2,000 years ago is here at Moody Keswick on the campus today. And I have exactly the same privilege that those folks had right here today to go for a little walk out in the grass, to sit down by the pond, and to take the word and to spend it with him. He is as much with me today right here at conference as he was with them on that Emmaus Road. And what that consciousness of his presence does is it cultivates worship and devotion in our lives. You see, I'm really convinced of the fact that as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And what you think about God will be the most influential change factor in all of your life. And on the last day of this week, my last day, the last day for some of you, on this last day when we're about to leave the conference and go back home and back to work and whatever it is we're going back to, isn't it a marvelous thing to know that we're not leaving God at Moody Keswick? If you visited Westminster Abbey, you stood before the monument raised to John and Charles Wesley. The hearts of thousands of God's people have been blessed by reading the three great quotations on that monument that come from John Wesley's ministry. One says, I look on all the world as my parish. The second says, God buries his workmen but continues his work. It's the third one I want to leave with you. They're the last words we know of John Wesley. He's on his deathbed. He said them once. And then he raised his hand and said them a second time. And his closing words were, And best of all, God is with us. Isn't that true? Let's pray.
Father, we're so thankful that we have a God who doesn't live in a temple over in Jerusalem. We're so thankful that when we leave the conference grounds today, we don't leave God behind. We're so thankful, Lord, that in every circumstance, in every situation, wherever we are in this immense universe of yours, that you are with us in the fullness of your person. And Lord, we just pray that the reality of that great truth will impact our lives with freshness this morning and that we'll be different men and different women because we have a God who's God. He's a God who's with us. Grant the desire and the petitions of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast and William McRae's message, A God Who is an All-Present God. Dr. William McRae was a school teacher, pastor, seminary professor, and president of what is now known as Tyndale University and Theological Seminary. Audio copies of this and many other messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Join us again tomorrow as we begin a new series of messages a former MBI president, Paul Nyquist, delivered at MBI Founders Week from 2011 to 2014. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.